0: Welcome to worship at Deniston Baptist. We're so glad to be back together. It's so good to be together to look at His Word and to spend the time. I tell you, it's only uh, week three in our Ephesians series, and I'm already being challenged and encouraged so much by all that the Lord is saying to us. We're digging back into Ephesians chapter 1 today and uh, looking at that next section, verses 7 to to 10. And uh, today's sermon is entitled, For the Son. For the Son, we we have two main points. To, so, spoiler warning: two main points as we look at our passage today. One, we're redeemed. We're going to look at Christ's role and and explore the gift and the depths that we have, what it means to be redeemed um secondly because we're redeemed God has revealed his will to us he's not going to stop with redeeming us he's actually going to bring heaven and earth together and remake all things so now you know what to look for and to listen for as we uh read our passage together so read along with me Ephesians chapter 1 starting in verse 7 it says in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. Uh, Last week, Andrew helped us to see how this whole passage from verses 3 all the way to about 14 is uh, one glorious, giant, run-on sentence, just chocked full of truth. It is dense, but in a glorious way. Uh, It's remarkable. It's one of the most significant passages we have in all of the New Testament. It has within it some pretty marvelous uh, news. And I I say that word marvelous quite intentionally. Uh, What does it mean for something to be a marvel? Uh, not in the sense of a film or a, a comic book or or graphic novel, but what does it mean to marvel at something? I, I, I mean, when you come across something suddenly that is surprising and awe-inspiring. Yesterday, I had the opportunity to be out in the hills with a couple of friends, uh, and it just happened to be one of those days that was unexpectedly good weather, <laughs> uh, better than we had hoped for. And at one point, as we stopped to get, uh, just to to take in the view, the stunning view that was before us, I was really unable to contain the shout of praise in my heart and just gave a, whoo, that is glorious, Lord. Thank you for letting us see that. That is amazing. Uh, and, and that's what this passage is for us today. It's the revelation of glorious truth. Today's section is incredibly interesting, I think. Last week we heard Andrew expand upon how the Father planned before anything was ever made, he planned and love to choose us to to adopt us to make us his own we heard how he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in christ and today, we're shifting members of the Trinity. Last week was all about the Father and His role. This week is all about the Son and His role of redemption. Uh, we're going to see how Jesus, the Father planned, and how Jesus brought action to that plan. He implemented the plan. He, he brought the spark that got that plan running. And especially, uh, that's His role within the Trinity and the Godhead. So, where last week we were in awe of how God would choose us to be His own people... Here's the glorious truth that we should marvel at today. Verse 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Through the work of Jesus Christ, we are redeemed by God. We're completely forgiven. And maybe you hear that say, and it doesn't really move the needle of your heart. You know, that, that accelerator doesn't really move up very much because you're just so used to hearing that. It's just so familiar to you. It's just become the norm. And I suppose for us to understand just how rich this truth is today, we have to have some context. We have to be able to see the whole picture and be able to, to contrast this exceptionally good news with the bad news of the way things used to be in our lives. Our passage today is like the finest food. When you taste it, you can't fathom just how good every single bite is. Uh, many years ago, Dina and I went out to, to dinner at, at this really famous steak restaurant where we're from. And it was a family occasion. Uh, we, we got all dressed up, and it was with her, her family. And, and, uh, and I just remember having this sense of anticipation in my heart. As I ordered uh, the the food, the reputation of this this restaurant caused me to have just like this excitement in my heart for what what awaited me. And when my plate arrived, my mouth's watering right now as I think about this, uh, the most (laughs) beautiful steak I've ever seen in my life sat in front of me, surrounded by ample portions of the finest perfect sides. I'm telling you that as I took my first bite, that steak absolutely just melted in my mouth. Every single bite was that way from start to finish. But here's the thing. I wouldn't know how special that meal was if I hadn't had any context in my life. If I had never actually tasted steak, I wouldn't know how special that was. I would know that it was good but I wouldn't realize the depths of how special that meal was, of how special it was to go to that place and have dinner there with those people in that moment. It took all my years of experience of eating steak before and since for me to understand just how rare, pun intended, that steak was. Uh, I mentioned my walk yesterday and how the sight of those snowy hills just brought this, this shout of praise, but I didn't tell you about all the hard work it took to get up to that moment. I didn't tell you about the burning muscles and the fatigue and the sweat and and the, the moaning and groaning in my head of why am I doing this and this muddy approach. It was only because of the hardship that the view of those hills meant what they meant in that moment. They would have still been beautiful if I'd have driven there and gotten out of the car and seen it, but it wouldn't have been as special on, in that moment. The hard work of getting to the top of the hill Uh, in order to behold the sight, gave context to what lay in front of me. So today's passage is good. I mean, but unless you truly understand how broken we are apart from Christ, you don't understand how special this is this morning. The bad news is that we are hopelessly lost apart from the work of Christ on our behalf. In the coming weeks, we're going to get to chapter 2. Eventually, I promise, we're going to get to Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to see just how out of control things are in our lives apart from Christ. For now, I'll just make this distinction. It's not just that things seem hopeless. They don't just seem hopeless. They actually are hopeless apart from Christ. There actually is no other hope we on our own are powerless to change. Not one of us can make things right between us and God apart from the work of Christ in our lives. The Bible actually says that compared to the holiness and the perfection of God's righteousness, our righteousness is as polluted garments. The very best that we can do to try to make things right are as filthy, polluted garments. That's our best righteousness in comparison to his. Have you ever been in a dire situation where you were completely unable to help yourself? I'm talking about a place where you find yourself completely unable to control things around you, powerless to change the situation. Uh, typically, when things go wrong, I can keep a somewhat even keel level head uh, and know what to do i'm able to act and resolve the situation or get help or at least kind of troubleshoot usually but occasionally that didn't happen and one of those times was uh, was several years ago our family was on holiday with claire pre at the time and uh and we were enjoying the beauty of a summer morning uh, in this this airbnb that our family had had rented and, and we were having breakfast we were getting ready for the day ready to go out on an adventure and in the house where we were staying in the main room on the second floor there was this huge beautiful window that opened up and looked into this medieval v- village that we were staying in and it was a beautiful day so we opened the windows to let the breeze in let the sun in and it was gorgeous and at one point i looked up and to my absolute horror My three-year-old daughter, in the blink of an eye, had moved from the table and climbed up onto the windowsill. And there she was in this open window, sitting on the edge with her back, nothing separating her from leaning too far and falling backwards two flights down to the cobblestone street below. And in that moment that seemed like several minutes but it was only a moment. I recognized that if I ran towards her, I could startle her. I could cause her to recoil. She could lean back and fall. And, and so in the fraction of a second that I found myself deliberating over what to do, I found that I was frozen in my fear. I, I couldn't move. I felt like my feet were stuck in mud. I don't know if you ever tried to walk in mud and it's slow motion, just heavy, not able to do anything, just slow motion, and and all I could think about was my sweet baby girl tumbling out that window onto the street below. My heart was pounding, my thoughts were racing, not not even keel, not level headed in that moment, paralyzed, powerless. I was powerless. Thankfully, uh, Claire was also in the room, and she calmly walked walked over gently. To Maggie and picked up Maggie and put her down on, out of the window uh, and everything was okay but just like in that moment you and I are powerless that morning started off so beautiful and, and perfect and it could have ended in tragedy thank God it didn't but it was completely out of my control life is completely out of your control you are powerless to change without Christ that's why this passage is such good news for us today. God did for us what we were unable to do for ourselves. And that's not even the most seemingly unbelievable part. The crazy thing about what Jesus did is that when he redeemed us, he made us doubly his. Now here, here's what I mean by that. God created every single one of us. He made us. He, he made us in his image. We are his we, we went our own way, even though we are his. We sinned and rebelled against him. We chose to, to walk away from him, even though we are his. Psalm 139 helps us to see this. It says in verse 13, For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So every single one of us are God's creation. And even though we're his creation, every single one of us have rejected him. We've gone our own way. And the sinfulness in our nature worked out in the action of our lives has brought complete separation from us and God. So for Jesus to then redeem us, it means that he is paying an unimaginable price for what was already his. What he did for us was radical. In our human logic and understanding, it doesn't really make sense if, if we spend some time thinking about it. It's, it's incomprehensible. Let me read those two verses again in verse 7. In Him, in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. We're now doubly His. This is why what Jesus did and what this passage says is so special. In Christ, we have been redeemed. We, we've talked about this before, but but it's like that Christmas voucher that's set there all year long. You you haven't spent it. It's to you know a gift from last Christmas from someone for a meal or an experience or or something, and it's just a piece of paper or it's just an image on your phone until it's redeemed, and then. It's worth this meal. It's worth this experience. It had no value in and of itself beforehand. It only had potential value until it was redeemed by the owner of the restaurant or the venue. Its value was activated and brought great worth. Jesus redeemed us in a way that made us new creations. He exchanged our sinfulness for his infinite righteousness and made us supremely valuable to God. Now we are exceedingly precious to him. And he didn't just redeem us, but verse 7 says he forgave our trespasses. He wiped away every bit of the evidence that there ever was anything between us and God. It's interesting here that Paul uses a word that's translated as trespasses instead of the word sin. Uh, It's a great word picture for us. I I love living in Scotland. I love the outdoor access laws that you you can responsibly and respectfully go anywhere, walk anywhere. Um, Where I grew up in America, it's not that case. The laws of the land are very different. Um, You probably don't want to walk on anyone's private property when signs are posted uh, and under the threat of bodily harm. So um, while I am so glad we have the ability to freely roam here, enjoy the creation, I would not do that where I grew up. Um, To trespass is to willfully walk somewhere you're legally not allowed to go. It's, It's to go places that are not meant for you. In our sin, that's exactly what we did. We went to places we were never meant to go. We strayed down paths that ran counter to what honors God. Each of us, in some way, in some facet of our life, at some point, have wandered to places we should have never been. Whether that's in relationships, how we've used our finances and money, how we've viewed others, how we've viewed ourselves, we've all trespassed in some way. And this verse tells us that Christ has wiped out all of that. On the cross, he redeemed us. He removed our trespasses. If we have put faith in him and trusted our lives with him, we are doubly his. Isn't that brilliant? So one, Jesus redeems us. He forgave our trespasses. But look at what else this passage says, that Jesus did all of this according to the riches of his grace. The riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us. I love that you see that word rich there to describe a few different things here. We, we see it used to describe the quantity of the grace of Christ that he absolutely he was absolutely minted in grace. I mean, he is just rolling off the bills of grace. I mean, he's, just, he's making it all. There's, there's another source of wealth. There's no other source of wealth like his of grace There never has been. He is rich in grace. But can I also suggest this morning that this isn't just quantity that we're talking about. It's also speaking in terms of, uh, of quality of Christ's grace. There's nothing else like it. In terms of quality, it's, it's also the richest grace that there is. So from that abundant wealth of all that grace, which is rich in quality, he richly poured it out upon us. But but stay with that line of thinking for just a moment. This this passage isn't just talking about the quantity in which he owns, but also the quantity that he poured out on us. He has heaped it out upon us. The ESV's translation from the Greek to the to the English it gives a subtle change there. It, instead of saying he he poured it out on us, it says he it, he lavished it upon us. Just to kind of give. A little bit of a word picture there. He he does that subtle change. How does that subtle change help us to, to understand this better? Well, if you look up the definition of the word lavish, this is what you'll find. Something that is lavish is, quote, unquote, sumptuously rich. That's pretty interesting. <laughs> Elaborate or luxurious. luxurious. That's in line with what we just read a moment ago. But but the verb form, which is what the ESV used, says that to lavish is to bestow something in generous or extravagant quantities. Pastor and commentator Kent Hughes offers a really helpful observation about what Paul says here. He notes that God did all of this according to the riches of His grace. He highlights that word. That there's a difference between giving from your riches and giving according to your riches. To give from your riches is simply to give an amount, large or small, from from anything, from from what you have. But to give according to your riches is to give in proportion of your wealth. It is, it's to just to give in, in light of what you own. It's to walk down the street, to see someone sitting there with a bucket, to give of your riches is to take out a, a pound coin and put it in the bucket. But if you're loaded like Jesus is loaded in grace, It's to absolutely just stand there and like a river, just dump it out upon the guy sitting there. Jesus took from the infinite wealth of his sumptuously rich grace that he bestowed, and he bestowed it upon us in generous and extravagant portions. That means that when Jesus redeemed you, when he forgave your trespasses, he didn't just turn the faucet on to a small trickle or just a few drops. No, 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 no. It's not like that at all. I I like to, some of you know this, I like to drink coffee, but I also like to make coffee. I enjoy probably making coffee as as much as I like drinking it. And in the mornings, uh, I like to make a a pour over. And I have this great little kettle that lets you kind of have this really controlled, you know, small amount of water come out of it just just to have the right amount uh, there. But that's not the idea here. Instead, what we see here is heaps, deluges, rivers, huge quantities poured out upon our life. That's what Christ did in your life. There was no measure to what he did. There was so much generosity behind that. So if that's the case, and I hope you're beginning to see as I go on and on and on and on with the thesaurus there, that as Christ lavished out his rich grace upon your life, there is never a worry of it running out. Never a worry of it running out. Uh, So that's like the picture of baptism. It's the full immersion of your life into grace. And that's why Andrew last week so confidently said that there's no concern that God would unchoose you after he has chosen you. There's no concern of him ever taking it back because of how generous he has been with his grace in our lives. Jesus did this intentionally. See, he, it wasn't a response. It, it wasn't like Andrew said last week. It wasn't like, "Oh dear, I've, I've, we, they've messed up. We've got to figure out a plan B now." No, from the beginning, from before creation, this is what this was the plan, from a place of being completely informed about every dynamic. Look at what verse says there: that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. Jesus approached this with all wisdom and all understanding. There was nothing hidden about your life or my life that after Jesus did his, well, I didn't know that was the case in your life. Probably wouldn't have gone there had had I known that. No, everything was known about your life, past, present, and future, and Jesus still chose to do that work in your life. He still offers freely, if you've never put trust in him and faith in him, to do that in your life. He knows you better than you know yourself. And he still chooses to do that. God did all of this with the approach of having all the information. We saw last week how the Father made the plan in eternity past to choose us and to pour his love out on us. And here we see that Jesus put action to that and he accomplished the plan from a place of wisdom and understanding fully informed. And that's why we can confidently say that this wasn't an accident. Salvation wasn't accomplished because of a whim by God. It wasn't the emergency backup plan. He carried it out with perfect understanding. But look back up to verse five. It's not just from a cold understanding that he did this. No, this says, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will. God didn't just save you because it was a good thing to do. We often say that ultimately God's, uh, his whole mentality, his whole agenda, everything he's about is to make much of his, his name, to bring glory to himself. And while that's true, I wonder if sometimes in our saying that, we can miss that on the other side of the coin, that it brings him great pleasure to do that in our lives. It brings him great pleasure to lavish us with his grace. It brings him great pleasure to draw you near to himself, to reveal himself to you, to be in relationship with you. God didn't just save you because it was a good thing to do. It undeniably brought him great pleasure for the father to plan and the son to carry out the plan to redeem us. It delighted his heart to save you. That's important to remember today. God, in his perfect state of being, radically redeemed us, the ones who he already owned because he made us. He did that from a perfectly informed wise place. He did that with love in his heart. It brought him pleasure. But And that's what we've read this morning. It's amazing because it presents such a picture of God, that he's perfect in every way. He takes pleasure and delight. And that's point number one, that in Christ, your life is doubly owned by God. You've been redeemed. But secondly... Because we're redeemed, he has revealed his will to us. Look back at our passage, verses 9 and 10. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure that he, there it is again, is good pleasure to him. His good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. So here we jump back to the roles of father planning, son carrying out the plan. And again, we see the idea of something bringing God pleasure. First, it was the work of saving us. But this verse says it brought God the father pleasure to make his will known to us. It pleased his heart for us to know and for us to understand that what he's going to do in the future. Our passage refers to this as the mystery of his will. Uh, What was hidden? about God's will. Why was it a mystery? Why does it say that? Well, it was a mystery because not all the details of how God was going to do these things, uh, how he's going to bring salvation through the Messiah were known. The incarnation, the way the way Jesus would take on flesh and become one of us was unknown. There were several key things that were unknown before Christ. How the rescuer, the Messiah would die how he would rise again and then return as a victorious king. It was a mystery. There were hints, there were glimpses, there were prophecies, there were pictures put into the society, but to the people, it was unknown, and it was unknowable unless God revealed it. That mystery now, Paul says, has been revealed, and it was only revealed fully when Christ accomplished this for us. Before that time, there was a mystery surrounding God's will. And it brought God pleasure to reveal it to us, to show us what he was doing. That one day, he was going to remake all things. A new heaven and a new earth, bringing them together where there's no separation, but us only living in perfect harmony with him in his presence, alongside him forever. The Bible speaks of a future ahead of us where we will eternally dwell with God face to face in his presence In a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to remake all things so there will be no more brokenness. No more brokenness. That's really significant for us today because the fact that God has redeemed us and has now revealed his will to us directly impacts our daily lives. It directly affects how you go to work tomorrow, how you interact with your family, how you interact with the strangers on the street or on the bus or wherever you go. It informs our day-to-day experiences and that it gives us hope to keep walking the pilgrimage of the Christian life. It brings us great hope to live out a life filled with hardship all while keeping our eyes firmly fixed on the Savior that we're going to spend eternity with, eternal future with that brings God's heart delight. So because of this, we had the benefit of being able to trust God with every situation in our lives. Even though sometimes it's hard for us to understand, God, why am I walking through this? How is this going to make you glorious in my life how how is this going to be worked through to bring about the good in my life we we might not always understand but we can trust that the lord in his timing is going to bring the good in our lives even in the hard difficult things he's trustworthy And and as we close today, I I can't leave this passage today without pointing out one last thing. In in our Western mindset, it's, it's easy to read this whole passage and easily miss the fact that this wasn't written to individuals. We read it as individuals, as written to me, that God chose me before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, that in love he predestined me to adoption as son or as daughter, that he's redeemed me. No, it's that. That from the beginning, for he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love. He predestined us to adoptions, us to adopted as sons through Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Verse 8, that he richly poured out on us us verse 9 that he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure because of the work of christ in our collective lives as his people he delights in he he's revealed a glorious future that we together can hope in that's what makes this special that, that we spur one another on in that hope. Yes, I can have personal hope, but it's not the same as us being in it together, walking out faith together, encouraging one another. Going back to that hill yesterday, there were moments where I needed encouragement. There were moments where others needed encouragement to get up the hill or to be careful coming down the hill. We need one another in this life. Paul writes this, so that the one another can step to the forefront and we can do life together. So I ask, and as we think about this, where is Jesus in all of this? Well, at the center of this picture, this hope, this future is Jesus. All of this happens because of, through the work of and for Jesus. He's at the center of all of that. So is he at the center of your life today? Christian, is he at the center? How you spend your time, how you prioritize the things in your life, how you engage with people, how you spend your money, how you work at your work, your job. Follower Jesus, he redeemed you and you are no longer yours. In fact, you are doubly his. It brought him great pleasure to reveal his will to you so that you could live life with great hope. Let the reality of that just kind of sink in this morning. Let those those great truths from today motivate you to be in awe of him. Savor it. Bask in the glory of that. More than a stake. More than a view of hills and creation. Let us lift our eyes and see that we serve a God who has done unimaginable great things in our lives. Because here's our closing application today. If we'll glimpse the great radical links to which God went to, to lavish his love upon us, one, we will be motivated to love him and direct our lives around him and all he wants for us. We won't withhold anything for him. Everything will be on the table for him in our lives. And that will bring great joy. Second, we'll be motivated to share this amazing truth with others. There'd be nothing nothing hindering us. Instead, there'd be this motivation, this, this compulsion that if God is this good in my life, I want others to know this, to experience this. And so I have to tell other people about this. In my circle, who else is gonna tell them if I don't? I need to be the one. Thirdly, because this letter uh, of Ephesians is given to the whole church and not to individuals, the reality of this truth will help us to see how significant our bond actually is. Yeah, we're spiritual family together, and we kind of throw that around, but do you see this morning the depth of the bond? Do you see what it's rooted in, the depth of the connection to the local church, the family of faith, that we are redeemed people united together in Christ for his glory? So is he at the center? Secondly, have you experienced this great redemption in your life? Have you you walked in this in your own life? Have have you experienced the grace of God in your life? For those of you who are here who have never trusted Jesus with their life, the offer is on the table for you today to give Christ your life. And, And giving your life to him, you're actually gaining. You're not actually losing. You're gaining so much. You're giving it to the one who loves you and made a way for you to have a relationship with God. The one who just having a relationship with him is supremely satisfying. Do you need prayer today? Samuel already made mention of this. Maybe you're here and there's an issue in your life, an issue of healing, something going on, a situation you'd like prayer for. I'll be here afterwards. I'd love to pray with you. There are many who would love to, to the privilege of doing that with you. But we're going to respond now in two ways this morning. We're going to have a time of singing as we process and celebrate the the truth of God's word. But we're also going to respond by by coming uh, through the table. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is for you today. This is for you as an act of worship. But if you've never asked Christ to be the Lord of your life, then we ask you just to observe this time of worship. If you're still trying to work out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we ask you just to abstain and let that pass you by. Last, like last week, I'm going to come around and serve you the elements just to kind of make less of a traffic jam over here. Okay, so uh, we close by saying that it was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took the bread and he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup. Matthew's gospel records it this way in Matthew 26. It says, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The very thing we've been looking at in Ephesians 1. So take this bread. Take this cup, remembering that you were redeemed by Jesus the Son. You were redeemed for Jesus the Son. You are doubly his. He delighted in doing that work. In your life. So let's celebrate that today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. <clears throat> Jesus, you are at the center of all we've talked about today. And so we say, Your name be honored. Your name be magnified. You are worthy of all praise and glory today. We are in awe of the links that you went to to purchase us, to redeem us, to forgive our trespasses. Help us today to. Uh, think about ways that maybe you're not at the center of our life and help us to to sort that today. Help us, Lord, to commit anew, to simply lean into relationship with you, to draw near to you in the word, to, to draw near to you in the fellowship of the local church. Help us to do that well today. We withhold nothing of our lives before you in Jesus' name. Amen.